0: The is in why
1: Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is heart of the matter where religious nuts come face to face with Christian fruit. We hope. Uh, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, his ministry. We're grateful for those who help out every week, who volunteer, keep things going on the phones, behind the scenes, in the cage, behind the cameras. And all those who support uh, the ministry around the world, we thank you. Thanks for being with us tonight. You know, I think we may have been missing something in our church, uh, in our approach to doing church. And, and, and we have been getting some really good ideas. Linda gave us this idea. Take a look. All right, Brian's gonna lead us in the Holy Ghost I can poke you pokey. Can... Put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you dig your right hand out. You put it in and you shake it and you shake it all about. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left. Hand out, you put your left hand in, you take your left hand out, you put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out, you put your right foot in, you take your right foot out, you get your right foot in, you take your all right foot yeah. out. I'm sure Jesus is just glorified through that, you know? The Holy Ghost, hokey pokey. Uh, Just just staggering to me. All right, let it go. One of the greatest complaints many former Latter-day Saints have with Mormonism is when they step back and they examine the faith, they often see it as nothing more than a social club with some religious application Now, the religious applications can be very serious for many Latter-day Saints, but for some, it's not serious at all. It's just really a club. In other words, it really doesn't matter when you're LDS, and I learned this as as an active member, what a person truly believes as long as you belong, as long as you're kind of a cheerleader for the faith, and as long as you participate in the activities with smiles and apparent zeal, and you don't rock the boat. Now, stay with me. If a denomination teaches that there are mandatory rituals and practices, like taking the LDS sacrament every week or baptism or the Catholic communion, then meetings on Sundays has at least a soteriological purpose for them, meaning their members have to participate to remain in God's good graces. So in my opinion, this presents a greater justification for the LDS and the Catholics to get together every Sunday in a brick and mortar building than those who have nothing but social interaction for believers to attend to. In this sense, country club mentalities are truly far more prevalent in non-denoms that eschew weekly, weekly rituals than those who provide them to their uh, congregations uh, every week, like the LDS and the Catholics and the Lutherans. Of course, I disagree that any of those rituals are at all necessary, but that's kind of beside the point. In light of the fact that the LDS and Catholics and Lutherans believe such things are necessary, they have a better reason to hold weekly church in brick and mortar places than places like campus, which is us, or, or Calvary Chapel, or any other non-denom. What is the purpose of people flowing into non-liturgical, non-ordinance-laden, non-communion churches today, especially into the mega church? What is the purpose? Is it to hear the word of God? We can hear the word of God in this day and age on the radio, on television. We read it on our own. And we as, now we can especially watch it online from a thousand different places. So it couldn't just be to hear the word of God. Is it to worship or do what people call worshiping, the Holy Ghost hokey pokey, to really worshiping? Sing, stand, raise hands. Again, we can, we really should do that on our own with God in ourselves, in our cars and in our bedrooms and when we're praising God. We can also do it through the internet. So just what is it? that causes people non-liturgical people today to get out of bed on sunday change their clothes drive across town find a place to park find a seat in the auditorium pay donations and money to the institution as it gathers them listen to music hear a message and then for the most part like cattle for the most part there's people who engage flow back out into the world Oh, for fellowship. So for the experience of feeling united with like-minded believers, to enjoy social intercourse with others who obviously believe the same things that we do. Fine, that's good. But isn't that the same thing as country club mentality? Isn't it, doesn't it parallel that? My point is that we call Mormonism a club, which it is for many people, But the LDS and the Catholics actually have more of a reason, a practical reason to get together every Sunday than those who flow into churches that eschew liturgical practices, uh, saying that they're unnecessary. Here's what I'm really getting at. Since non-liturgical churches are gathering for no other reason than to socialize because they can hear the word in worship and it can be done online and for free today, why build edifices? Why embrace overhead and burden those who attend elaborate brick and mortar with offerings and tithes and drives and causes? Why? Is it all just so that we have a place where we can fellowship? Could it be that the leaders of such places are playing church and they want the nicest country club around? Saying in effect, and I quote the Old Testament, Go to let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. We have brick for stone and slime for mortar. And they say, go to let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. It is entirely fascinating this culture that we call modern day evangelicalism because all of the biblical elements that they offer every week are readily available outside of it. They're readily available to anybody who's just seeking for truth, at least in the material sense. So again, we can read and hear the word outside of it, we can worship outside of it, we can socialize outside of it. Why the heck do believers continue to follow men and their fantasies to build a city and a tower that will reach heaven and to make a name? Wouldn't the actual churches that reflect Jesus really reflect Jesus? Wouldn't they really reflect what he was about? What was he about? He was born in a manger. He, the son of man had no place to rest his head. He, 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 uh, he, he had nothing that man would desire of him. Why don't his churches reflect that imagery? Wouldn't it be great if believers would rise up and refuse to flock to such locales, but will only gather in places that come without financial burden, a burden of time, a burden to serve the machine all the time. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. How come many of the churches that bear his name aren't? That being said, I did have a sister here on Sunday, Barbara, tell me uh, that she has been watching uh, our streaming services from campus, and she said there's a tangible difference between watching the word being taught on TV and actually being in a room with other believers, okay? So instead of making this so extreme, like I started off with, how about a compromise, okay? let's gather in places and meet and sing and study and fellowship, but work hard to deconstruct them? Wouldn't it be great if across the nation, across the world, we would deconstruct Christianity as it is today? Wouldn't it be nice if evangelicalism unitedly decided to liquidate their superfluous assets, superfluous assets surrounding them, dumb the whole thing down and use the excess to really make a dent in something real? instead of surrounding themselves in comfort. All stuff to consider in an age where, I'm gonna tell you, the young people are not gonna put up with it. They will see through it and they will say no more. They're not gonna accept the burdens and the game plan. They're gonna see it. Uh, the older generation we like the standard of going to church and it's a nice facility and things the younger generation we got a lot of people who could give a rat's rear end about that they just want what's real when it comes to god and christ whether you meet in a barn or whether you meet out on the street or at some other place and with that let's have a word of prayer father we seek you uh, and i pray your forgiveness for the things that i say which are incorrect we pray that you will help us to be seekers of truth your truth supported and substantiated by the Bible, the historical record uh, of your work among the nation of Israel. We pray that we will have eyes to, ear, uh, eyes to see and ears to hear and uh, grow in faith and be willing to constantly uh, turn our will and self over to you. Uh, help the program to now and those who are seeking, in Jesus' name, amen. Sorry, let me clear my throat. <clears> throat> All right, it's gonna be a little heavy tonight. Stay with me though, it's interesting we're going to continue forth with what Jesus himself said about his second coming in the gospel accounts. So we can get into examples from the rest of the Bible of what his chosen 12 said about, and that's really interesting. It's not that what Jesus says isn't interesting, but he speaks an apocryphal language, and it's very difficult to uh, discern that, and that's why there's so many arguments about it. Here in the state of Utah, there are pastors, good pastors, almost screaming from the pulpit for their congregates to, to ready themselves because, you know, he's a coming and be on high alert, batten down the hatches. The Antichrist is rising. Mormonism started off as a millennialist movement. Smith and the others were saying, it's coming. We got to prepare ourselves. Prepare the kingdom of heaven so Jesus will come back and receive it. That was in its roots from its infancy. I'm sure it's being shouted all over the world with things that are going on in Israel. It has been for centuries. But what does the Bible say? The focus that these preachers put on the imminent return of Christ really makes me sad, not because we differ on eschatology, but because they are unduly burdening their congregants who ought to walk in the trust and faith that God has their back, whether he came in 70 AD at the fall of uh, Jerusalem or if he's coming next week. Either way, God has the believers back. Why the undo? The hype is just not necessary. Okay, in our study of Matthew 24, we have to recall that the disciples have come to Jesus at the beginning of Matthew 24 with three specific questions. I would suggest that the rest of Matthew 24 is Jesus answering these three questions. They said, Jesus, tell us, when shall these things be, the things that Jesus had warned the the Jewish leaders about prior to their sitting down and asking him these questions and the falling of the temple and what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the." Age. Now, the King James Version says it's the end of the world. That's not a good, it's not cosmos in the Greek. It's the end of the age, the aeon. And so when will be the end of the Jewish economy? Um, right off the bat, for futurists to use the rest of the chapter, Matthew 24, to describe the end of the world is completely errant because it's talking about the end of the Jewish economy. Jesus is describing for his disciples the end of the Jewish age. Check the Greek, if you don't believe me, prove me wrong. So we left off last week reading verse 22 where Jesus describing the end says, quote, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days would be shortened. And we talked about it. So let's pick up where Jesus continues and describes the signs of when shall these things be? The first question, verses 23 through 26, where he adds to last week's discussion saying, then, so he says, then, if any man shall say to you, lo, here is Christ or there, believe it not. For there shall rise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before, wherefore, if they shall say unto you, behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in secret chambers, believe it not. Now you can read those words, they're very contextually sound for his day. Chambers and and deserts and false Christs. During the first half of the first century, there are many false prophets that had arisen in the Roman Empire, claiming to have authority to perform astonishing acts of divine power. According to the church historian Eusebius, when Phaedas was a procurator of Judea, a man named Thutis led a vast multitude to the Jordan River where he promised he would divide it. They all went out there, okay? Josephus writes in his history that upon hearing about this, Phaedas sent an armed cavalry against them and many were killed and the rest were captured. In another instance, about the same time, a self-proclaimed prophet from Egypt gathered a vast crowd of common people to the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. This is all historical. From there, he promised that at his command, the walls of Jerusalem would fall before allowing them entrance into the city. When Felix, Roman uh, leader, heard about this, he sent his army against them. And uh, Josephus says, 400 people were killed, 200 more were taken prisoner. Furthermore, in Samaria, many people worshipped a man named Simon, claiming to be someone great. According to Josephus, this man performed many magical acts, and many people asserted that he was the divine power. These are all historical evidences of people showing up and proving them to be the one that Christ warned his apostles, if someone comes and says, I'm him, don't follow him. Now listen, the most convincing of them all was Vespasian, who believed himself to be the Messiah and was followed by many before his triumphal entry into Rome. Last week, we talked about how Vespasian was the one who came in and Titus was his son. Well, Vespasian apparently healed a blind man and a man with a withered hand, fulfilling Matthew 24, 23 through 24, where Christ says, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will appear. And... Perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Listen carefully to what Paul writes in 1st Thessalon—I mean Second Thessalonians—Chapter Two. Now I'm going to read this. Uh, I'm going to read through this. Just try to listen to it from Paul writing to the, the believers at Thessalonica. Just try to imagine that those believers are reading his epistle and what he says to them. You ready? Now, futurists, people who are waiting for Christ to come, take this and they say, this is speaking of the man who's coming. But just listen to what it says. Paul writes, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him. So it's a letter, it's an epistle to them. He says, by our gathering unto them, that you be not soon shaken in mind, nor be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us. So there was a lot of false things going around as that day of Christ is at hand. Remember, we've talked about passages where at hand is used in scripture to describe Christ's coming. Here, Paul says, don't let these people make you think it's at hand. It's not at hand yet, okay? He goes on let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God and that is worshiped so that he as God sitting in the temple of God shows himself that he is God. Remember this when I described Vespasian in a minute. Remember ye not what, what, excuse me, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now ye know that what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time for the mystery of iniquity doth already work. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, he tells them. It's going on. The guy's getting on there. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So, of course the futurists are still waiting for this miracle working demon to show up, but the historical record strongly suggests he already has. Who? Remember that immediately prior to becoming Caesar, Vespasian, the former Roman general of the Jewish war, was approached by that blind man and a man with a withered hand. The two men fell before the emperor and begged to be healed by him. Initially reluctant, Vespasian finally agreed to heal them. And this is what Josephus, we talked about last week, he was assigned to record this stuff. This is what he wrote. Quote, with a smiling expression, and surrounded by an expectant crowd of bystanders, he, Vespasian, did what he was asked. Instantly, the cripple recovered the use of his hand and the light of day dawned upon his blind companion. Both these instances are still vouched for by eyewitnesses, though there is not nothing to be gained by lying. That's exactly what Josephus, this Jewish, removed historian said that Vespasian actually did miracles walking in shortly after Nero's death Rome fell into a civil war not long after becoming emperor of Rome it was Vespasian who inaugurated listen an age of peace between Rome and Jerusalem we talk about the Antichrist who will come and he's going to make it a, a, an agreement and all the stuff and, he, and there's going to be peace. Well, Vespasian did this, having put an end to the war in Israel and the civil war in Rome. He had revived the Roman Empire, bringing treaty. Furthermore, an ancient Jewish prophecy predicted that a king would arise out of Israel to rule. During Israel's war with Rome, many Jews fully expected the Messiah to rise up and forcibly established this new order. The Jews, however, ultimately lost this war, so the prophecy was regarded by many to have been fulfilled by Vespasian. Having been stationed in Israel immediately before coming emperor, Vespasian, who could be the beast of revelation, was widely regarded as the Jewish Messiah by the people at that time. In addition to all this about Vespasian, excuse me, during the Jewish war, the leaders, remember the Jews were fighting against Rome and they were gonna get slaughtered, but the leaders thought that they could win. So what the leaders did was they compelled others to rebel by, and they caused some of them to act as prophets and to speak for God and to tell people we are going to win. So what they did, the people were suborned or bribed to predict that God would deliver Israel from the Romans in order to encourage the Jews to keep fighting, all right? One of these prophets caused multiple uh, deaths. According to Josephus, this man made a public declaration in Jerusalem that God had commanded the people to seek refuge in the temple, where they would be delivered miraculously. Of course, Jesus warned his apostles to be on the lookout for such deliverers right here in Matthew 24. Naturally, these predictions proved to be false, and these false prophets were collectively responsible for a tremendous amount of loss of life. Last week, we quoted 1,100,000 Jews slaughtered because they followed people like that. In verse 27, Jesus continues, and he says, "'For as lightning comes out of the east, and shines unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. There are several ways to understand this apocalyptic verbiage, and one or more of them might be correct. You consider it. They're all viable. First of all, listen to what Jesus says. For as the lightning comes out of the east, so he gives us a picture, and shines even to the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You could take it in a very simple way. As, so And so we might think Jesus was saying that uh, the Son of Man would come and it would be quick, it would be bright, it would be evinced in the signs in the sky coming from the east and not a literal presence of him walking around on the ground. In the Old Testament, when God was described as coming in the clouds, the Spirit of the Lord was pictured as riding dark storm clouds accompanied by rumblings of the earth, thunder and lightning. Let me read to you 2 Samuel 22, 10 through 15. It's an example. This is describing the very same language Jesus says about coming, ready? It says in Second uh, Samuel, he parted the heavens and came down. Whenever the Jews believed God was coming down, this is how they described it. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning uh, blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the most high resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy with great bolts of lightning, he routed them. That's the language of the Old Testament, how they would describe God visiting his judgment upon the earth. In Matthew 24, 27, Jesus promises to return in a like manner. In fact, uh, Jesus likens The fact that he likens his return as lightning that comes from the east illustrates the fact that when Christ comes in the clouds in judgment, he will do so as the Lord has done in the past. Riding on dark storm clouds accompanied by lightning. Matthew 24, 27 was fulfilled both literally and symbolically in the Jewish war. Historical confirmation of lightning marking the second coming of Christ is found in the writings of Roman uh, historian Tacitus, who wrote, quote, ready in the sky appeared a vision of armies in conflict of glittering armor a sudden lightning flash from the clouds lit up the temple the doors of the holy place abruptly opened a superhuman voice was heard to declare that the gods were leaving it and in the same instant came the rushing tumult of their departure that's reported by josephus in wars his book In this brief account, Tacitus, the secular Roman, may have unknowingly recorded the lightning flash associated with the heavenly return of Jesus. Now, admittedly, Tacitus wrote of this happening in 66 AD, okay, but Jesus is describing the sign of his coming, and that could have been one of the signs that the believers were looking for, and Tacitus brought it out. Notice how he mentions that a superhuman voice was heard. Tacitus writes this, which parallels and echoes Second Samuel twenty-two fourteen, which I just read, which says, "The Lord thundered from heaven, and the voice and the Most High uttered His voice." Josephus also mentioned in his War of the Jews, saying, "Quote: Listen, before sunsetting, this is Josephus' account. Chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds." and surrounding of cities." End quote. That's a firsthand witness, you guys, who says there were uh, soldiers and warriors in the clouds surrounding the cities. <laughs> you know, perhaps the most detailed description of the second coming is found in Revelation 19, 11 through 14. It says this, "'And I saw the heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vestiger dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean. In these verses, Jesus is pictured riding a white horse, leading an army of angels on horseback in the clouds. The description of the second coming in Revelation 19.11 and Josephus's account, first-hand account of the army in the clouds over Israel bears uncanny resemblance. Could it be that both Tacitus and Josephus unwittingly recorded the, the second coming that Christ prophesied? Additionally, according to Tacitus, quote, a sudden lightning flash from the clouds lit up the temple. He seems to imply that the lightning struck the temple during what appears to be a miraculous appearance. Where did the, where did the temple stand? Where does the temple mount stand? It stands on the eastern edge of Jerusalem. So as lightning comes from the east so and uh, shines to the west, therefore, if lightning struck the temple and Tacitus... As Tacitus seems to imply, then in this event, one can appreciate the literal fulfillment of lightning that comes from the east, mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 24:27. Um, Jesus says to his disciples, "As lightning comes from the east and shines to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be." There are three instances where Christians were given the sign to leave the city of Jerusalem. The first started in the war of I.R. 66. That's what Tacitus reported. Then following was the entrance of the uh, Roman army into the city under Florus. And then later again, the fall of that same year. According to Josephus, War of the Jews 219.4, the second time Jerusalem was surrounded by armies during the Jewish war was when Cestius, camped with the 12th legion on Mount Scopus to the northeast of Jerusalem in Tishri, AD 66. Hang with me, I know it's a lot. This 12th legion, according to Josephus, was gathered out of Syria. And Syria is one of where, at the time, it was guarded by Roman, um, it was on the eastern border of the Roman Empire. And they were there, the 12th legion, to guard against the Parthians. That was their place and they were brought into jerusalem okay the 12th legion had another name legio duodecima fulminata and it means armed with lightning okay and the military flag of the 12th legion which was flown wherever they went when they came into jerusalem from the east from the border protecting it when they came in guess what was on their flags lightning bolts just another possible way that we can see the fulfillment of Christ, what he warns about them. Um, Additionally, we have to note that the symbol for Rome is the Aquila or Aquila. Sorry, I never know how to pronounce Latin words, the Aquila or Aquila, (laughs) an eagle that bears the lightning bolts of Jupiter. And so these eagles were emblazoned upon their uh, uh, shields and on their epaulets, eagles holding the lightning bolts of Jupiter, okay? And uh, just another way that the fulfillment of the destruction of Jerusalem and the Christians who were warned by the early apostles, this is what the Lord told us to look for. They're seeing all this stuff and they know it's getting closer and closer. Let's end with verse 28 of 24, where Jesus says, for wheresoever the carcasses there will be eagles gathered together. So he summarizes this. He says, as lightning comes from the east and shines to the west, and then he summarizes, he says, for wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Vultures and eagles, just in the most simple way, uh, they go where dead bodies are and they eat. Uh, to devour them, so with the Roman army. Jerusalem was like a a dead putrid corpse. Its life was waning and they were ready to be devoured and that could be symbolic apocalyptic language. Could Jesus be saying that the Roman armies will find Jerusalem out as an eagle would find a dead carcass and come around and devour it? When it comes to how God has always worked on fallen man, the Romans falling upon them is completely In line with scripture. I personally find it interesting that Jesus does not use the term vulture uh, in this uh, to describe the invading Roman armies, but the eagle, he says an eagle. To me, it it sounds hawkish. One, uh, it sounds very militaristic in the Romans coming in and uh, overwhelming prey. but additionally it is said that roman armies had eagles sewn onto their epaulets as i said with the lightning bolts more potentiality add in that their symbol was that eagle and we have reasonable reading of verse 28. additionally just prior to the fall of jerusalem the remaining jewish rebels fled to the temple for refuge they went to the temple mount eventually the romans broke into the temple causing a great massacre Concerning the aftermath, Josephus writes, our last quote, nor was there any place in the city of Jerusalem that had no dead bodies in it, but what was entirely covered with those that were killed either by the famine or the rebellion, and all was full of the dead bodies of such as had perished either by that sedition or by that famine. And we could have a literal fulfillment of that with birds of prey hovering over. Listen. Because the apocryphal, apocalyptic nature of Jesus' language in Matthew 24, these explanations in proving his return in 70 AD are the weakest of the explanations that we have. They are the weakest. Just wait till we get and read what the apostles said about his coming. And you cannot say they didn't believe he was coming. in a very, very short period of time as the Bible inches toward 70 AD. And that is what convinced me. We can all differ about what Matthew 24 says. And that's why there's a division between uh, uh, preterists and uh, futurists and all this. But when it comes to the apostles, there's only one thing we can say, and I'm gonna give a quote next week from C.S. Lewis. It's the greatest problem we have. It's the greatest problem we have in scripture. They were either wrong and they thought he was coming and he didn't. Therefore, we're reading words of the apostles that we trust as being inspired, but they were wrong or they were right. And if they were right, then we have been seeing it wrong the whole time. Let's open up the phones, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. While the operators clear your calls, take a look at these three friendly reminders. 二 Oh, sorry. Uh, um, we have a question here. uh like my glass on. Why are you clumping Mormons and Catholics together? Because Mormons focus on just Joseph Smith and Catholics focus on Jesus. Well, I think you missed the point. The point was when it comes to ritual, weekly ritual, taking communion, taking the sacrament, the LDS, the Catholics, and the Lutherans have that in common. They believe you go and you repent and you do these rituals and it helps you as you overcome your sin by confession and all the things very similar in their uh, that and their liturgy. And so that and that's the way I'm making is what I was talking about and how I'm lumping them together. Uh, they're very different in many other ways. Mormonism actually has far more to, uh, in common with Islam than it does with Catholicism. Uh, uh, you know, One thing that's really important to understand, you guys, when we talk about eschatology in times, in the Mormon Christian debate, which is still on our plate here, it's really important to understand that that Joseph Smith, he bought into the second coming fervor, the millennialist return way back when, and the LDS are still waiting for the return. If Christians, and there's many Christians, I'm not some far-fetched guy. Hank Hanegraaff's a partial preterist. He believes this stuff was fulfilled. Uh, There are Christian scholars who believe this stuff. Uh, If Christians could come to a clarity of what the Bible says about his return, we could show another trump card about how Mormonism's got it wrong. That's why we cover stuff like this. So I hope that makes sense. All right, uh, we have a letter from Johnny A. I wanted to thank you for helping me understand that I am saved through grace, not via rules of Mormonism on Sunday while my wife continues to go to the LDS church. I study the Bible with the help of our, uh, your videos and his shepherd's chapel, it must be his church. Um, I was Catholic growing up and my wife was an ex-LDS when we married, she started going back uh, to the church five years ago. And that was when I was introduced. I tried being a non-denominational Christian prior to joining the LDS church. I like the community and family values that sucked me in. And they do have good community. They have great community. And they have great family values. So, you know, maybe we can learn something from them and maybe we can start having great community and we do have great family values. But, you know, uh, after researching the facts and present issues with the LDS church, I am very angry at myself for falling for the cult. My wife's entire family is LDS, so that makes it more difficult. He says something very important here. I will continue loving them all and not judge anybody. Uh, Great insight from uh, Johnny because uh, look at your family, they're not gonna come around through brutality. They're not gonna come around through anything but love and long suffering, and you being a better Christian in your life than you were as a faithful active Latter-day Saint. That is what will bring people around. Uh, he goes on and thanks us for the ministry. It's been a blessing to me and my life and my family's life, John, so praise God. From Michael Lake in England, uh, full family, I believe if this is the right Michael, uh, full family came out of Mormonism and uh, they are truth seekers. And they, uh, they are smart because they are uh, testing all things by the word of God and they are not falling for just Uh, stumbling into an evangelical church and thinking that this has all the answers. Uh, He writes, having been a victim of the LDS and noticing the frequent contention of said groups and others attacking people seeking truth, I would like to publicly ask them to think about the following. The Lord once gave this counsel as the great commandment in the law. Ready? Man came to a master. What is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Uh, he goes on and says, I would suggest that any Christian individual group or church that ceases to actively seek and further, and further hinder genuine research into the Lord's teachings and truths either does not love the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his mind or believes that they know better than God and they are, have the right to restrict his teachings to, um, and to the supervision of men. I think that's fantastic insight, Mike. Because they don't. Furthermore, by trying to stop or restrict others from seeking such said truths, they are also falling afoul of love thy neighbor as thyself. They are allowing themselves freedom of judgment, expression, and free agency while denying others the same. Last week, the idea of churches battling it out as aired, um, we we're talking about this here, doing this thing called Sunday's Best. As to the one who does church best, this is a very worldly argument, he chides. He says, you shouldn't be doing this, Sean. Perhaps the real question is, which church or religion does truth better? We might change it for that. That's a good point. And, and they says, finally, yet again, it seems people do not really get that the LDS are also still under the cosh by the current program coverage of Heart of the Matter. Under the cosh is a colloquialism used, I guess, in England that means under pressure. They're still under pressure. Especially in, uh, excuse me, Uh, The gospel truths when exposed hurt all those who hide it, knowingly choose not to follow it, and tamper with it for their own ends. And in this, the LDS and others are often far from innocent. If you, Sean, can find the Greek meaning and translation errors, something you do well, by the way, we... Do we really believe the LDS with its universities, paid researchers, and teams of religious scholars and billions of dollars budget are truly unaware? I personally don't think so. He makes some great points. He says and suggests to me, let's just keep to the word in spirit and in truth and growth from the exploration of true biblical teachings and may we continue to look after and support one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you, Mike. I will try to listen to what you say and, uh, and move forward from that. Because uh, it is funny if you step outside the box and say, you know, I'm not so sure uh, about the end times and I'm not so sure about the word Trinity or the con- constructs of, of uh, what that was all made about or I'm not so sure about hell and its eternality you know, I know hell's real. I know people will suffer, uh, but the eternality of it, I question that, I wanna I mean, it's like you're uh, the biggest social pariah that ever walked the face of the earth. And you're kicked to the curb as quickly as you are kicked to the curb. Uh, if you stand up like John Delenn and say Mormonism's got some problems, they kick you to the curb. And they do it in every church. So Mormonism is not, it's not they're not alone in this. Truth seekers seekers of God who love God with all their heart, might, mind, and what, and they don't give a rat's rear end about anything else. Jesus said, the Father seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth, not just going to church, whether it be LDS or anything else. Speaking of John Dillon, Dillon, Dillon um, he gave an update on his uh, website. Uh, And he says that President King, he President King, the First Counselor met with me and Margie for a second time during this meeting. He provided the following conditions for my continued membership in the Church. So what we're hearing from John is what the top says he needs to do to continue to be a Mormon. Ready? One, publicly renounce and apologize for the false concepts you have widely expressed regarding God, Jesus Christ, the atonement, the restoration of the gospel, and the Book of Mormon. Cease providing a public forum for any person who is critical of church doctrine. Stop promoting groups or organizations that espouse doctrines contrary to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Resign your status as an ordained minister of another faith. He got a license to marry somebody, he never used it. And they wanna rein that back in (coughs) and say, (coughs) don't uh, do that. And uh, in the follow-up letter, Uh, they wrote this to President King to publicly clarify the sources, his concessions. These are John's concessions. They will publicly clarify the sources of my doubts and criticisms as I have already sought to do here. And he gives the reference online to work harder to ensure that the tone and substance of my, our work with Mormon Stories podcast going forward, along with many of the other public statements that I make in the future are as thoughtful, measured, and constructive as possible. I find John very thoughtful and constructive. I don't agree with his beliefs in terms of God and things, but I think he's very constructive. We, have, uh, we are happy to offer this concession as we had already started moving in this direction based on feedback from listeners. That I would resign from the website listed above, the one where he is a uh, minister In the same letter, we told President King that we could not concede to his other requests as a matter of conscience, i.e. take down Mormon Stories episodes that express doubts, criticism of the church, ceasing to publicly express or to interview people with future doubts, concerns regarding the church, ceasing our public support of same-sex marriage, and ordained women. So maybe I'll get to stay on his side. Uh, Today, we received an email from President King telling us that he was gonna have a wait-and-see approach. You know. It's interesting because this kind of thing, it seems like that Kelly girl with the ordained women and all this, it continues to show, and these letters and this, this power over the people. And so uh, I, I salute John for his willingness to uh, go after it this way. I, uh, I encourage him to uh, seek uh, Christ directly and uh, know him through spiritual rebirth like I would anybody else, but I, I love John. Uh, Troy Osmond, and. Merrill Osmond of the Osmond Brothers has a son named Troy, so this could be from him. He said, I wish you would stop the stupid notion that the LDS don't believe in the Christian Jesus. Uh, When he wrote that, I wrote him back and said, President Hinckley, your former prophet, uh, is the one who says you don't believe in the Christian Jesus. I'm just citing what he says. You, You are arrogant to believe that you know how we all perceive Christ especially when we were young, when we were taught and cherished and nurtured our personal relationship with Christ, not Joseph Smith or anyone else, just Christ, he says. And then he goes on, and this is what he says. Jesus Christ is my friend. He adds, he's my savior, your savior, savior of everyone we ever meet. I know he loves me and you. He writes, we are his younger brothers. You know, If we follow his gospel by having faith in him, repent of our sins, be baptized by one, having the authority of God, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, again, by the proper authority, endure to the end, we can be saved and have eternal life. Well, this message right off the bat, and it goes on and on, this message is counter to the biblical message as as earnest and erstwhile as Brother Osmond is in trying to get he says you know you have the opportunity to do a huge service as a christian by stopping your theme of your show of going against the lds he says focus on islam and i don't think that troy understands that mormonism and islam are very very closely related all the way from how joseph received revelation and and muhammad received revelation how they both proposed to have the most correct book on the face of the earth right in the forefront of the, uh, the forward of, of the Quran, it says, this is the most correct book on the face of the earth. Book of Mormon has always espoused the same thing. And you know the polygamy, the, the laws, we've had a show on, on Islam and Mormonism. You can go back and watch it in the archives at www.hotm.tv, and you can see all the similarities. And so, uh, you know, to me, reaching out to a Latter-day Saint with the truth of Jesus Christ is not one bit different than reaching out to a Muslim. Now, now, let me say something here. Can a Mormon be saved and be a Christian as a Mormon? Absolutely, I'm, there are plenty of them. I've, I've known them and I still believe they are. They believe in Christ, they truly have been born again. They follow after him. Uh, uh, I, why they stay or if they stay is, uh, is another question. But can they be While they I was, all right? And then the same hand, can a Muslim? I think they can. They believe in Jesus Christ. There are Muslims who, that's all they've got in Kazakhstan is Islam and they have Christ in their heart. They follow him the best they can. They do what they can. Are they out of Islam? No, but that's for God to decide. Our job is just to preach the truth and let those individuals be responsible for the things they're embracing and saying that they're gonna follow or not. You know, and that goes back to that subjective religion uh, thing. Finally, we had... um, from Tom on baptism of the dead. I was just listening to your episode about baptism for the dead and thought of something. What if Mormons miss an ancestor while doing their baptisms? Is that person just hosed or something? You gotta gotta laugh at that, just hosed or something. Isn't that Canadian? Uh, Anyway, uh, the LDS teach that, uh, and this is part of the problem with baptism being necessary for salvation Uh, is that if it is, they've got to have some kind of plan to make sure that everybody gets baptized. What's the origin of that? The origin was Joseph Smith had a brother who died suddenly. He was the oldest brother of the family. It broke everybody's heart. They loved this brother. And he died suddenly of uh, something with his stomach. And uh, a preacher went by the house and said he's going to hell. He hasn't been baptized. And it didn't take long for old Joseph in the construction of his faith to come up with the idea that, hey, we need vicarious baptisms for the dead so that people who weren't baptized here could have it later. You know, but the, it's all on a false premise of water baptism being necessary. John said, hey, I come baptizing with water, big deal. You know, Jesus, the one who shew, I'm not worthy to latch it, he comes baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's the thing we want. The water comes after we've been baptized by the Holy Spirit with fire, and we do that to show we are Christian now. We are uh, publicly saying, professing, I am a believer. I want to die with Christ. I want to be raised to new life. You can see me getting wet. That's the picture that we're going into the grave and rising with Christ. But it doesn't have anything to do with salvation, and we can prove that through Scripture. Uh, The Greek says it's as a result of being saved, not in order to be saved. So anyway... um, but the LDS teach that in the millennium, right, right now, we just do, they just do rituals in the temple in mass. Every name gets a, a done, you know? Heber Jones baptized, all right? But in the millennium, the LDS believe that in the temple, the heavens will be opened, the veil will be parted, and the, from heaven it will say, Heber Jones, no. Uh, Jim Smith, no. Stuart Anderson, no. Uh, Bill, Bill Brown, yes. And so and that's how they'll take care of those who have been missed or lost. That's the way I've understood it. I could be wrong on that, but I think that's pretty much the way it goes. We have a caller, James, from Brentwood, California. Brent, James in Brentwood, you're on the air.
2: Yeah, hi, Sean. Uh, thank you for all the work you do and the show you put out. Um, on your series, As Jesus Returned, I, I just want to clarify something. It's my understanding uh, we could say he was... Uh, Jesus was born in whatever, year zero, zero, and he died in 40 years later. Is that kind of how we know it, or?
1: Yeah, they say three or four BC and died at 33.
2: Okay, Now, now, of course, my understanding is he died, whatever, Good Friday, we call it, and then resurrected on Sunday. And we know he came back once. Are you saying in your series that he came back again, possibly, whatever 10 30 40 years after that
1: oh so you're counting his coming back in a resurrected form as a uh, when he was resurrected as his as his second coming
2: uh yeah that's what i'm trying to clarify like yeah. you know him being born here that's first visit him resurrecting that's the second visit i mean did he did he come again after the 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 sunday we celebrate because he he went back to heaven at least that's how i see it yeah. Uh, and then the way you're telling us in the last three shows, are you saying that he came back in the last, you know, another time, 40 years after that? I, I don't know. Yeah. I was just trying to get some clarity on that. And then, you know, a lot of, I'm a Christian. I, uh, wait,
1: wait, before you go on, I want to hear it. But but I, I can't, let me just try to answer this one first. Okay. Okay. When Jesus was talking about his second coming, we know it wasn't resurrection. Because, okay. because in Matthew 24, the disciples say, when will these things be? What will be the sign of thy coming? And when will be the end of this age? And he describes all this stuff we've been covering. None of that yeah. stuff is applicable to him before he resurrected. None of it.
2: True.
1: Yes. It would have had
2: to happen in like a couple days.
1: Yeah, it all would have had to happen in, in a very brief period of time.
2: Okay, so, so then... So, and you're, I'm not saying you're thinking, but the way you, I I appreciate you, you read the Bible and you don't, uh, you know, make more of it than what's there. And, uh, and I know a lot of people do, and they believe in traditions. And, you know, as a Christian, I have an open mind. You can, you can show me anything. You know, if a Muslim comes up to me and says, hey, here's what I believe. I'm like, tell me all about it. But I'm not going to, you know, get all uh, crazy on them and say, no, you must believe my way. But (laughs) anyway, but so. So you're thinking that maybe after his resurrection, he came back, whatever, in the next 50 years. Let's just say.
1: Yeah, 40 years is a generation, and he says, in okay. math, "He says within this generation will not pass." So yes.
2: Okay, and then the last thing, and this is very fast, is so you know as a Christian, uh, yes, I'm an earthly person, and truth be told, I should be just begging for heaven as a Christian. But you know, you get kind of, this is all I know is earth. But I mean, should, as Christians, uh, you know, the group I'm with, we all kind of look forward to Jesus coming again. Does the Bible speak to that? If, if, if we say he came back once already, uh, I, guess, I guess my question is, where's the hope in the future?
1: Yeah, you know? uh, and, and, and it's a great question. Because yeah. this, this teaching does tend to undermine the hope that people who have been walking and looking for his second coming, it tends to deflate that. That's not the intention. All it's- Yeah, t- yeah. We're gonna get to what that hope is and what the application is, James. And I think you'll, be, uh, you'll understand it. And there is hope, uh, but uh, it yeah. will be a little tweak and we're gonna get to that in the weeks to come
2: okay thank you and uh you know I'm, I'm i'm in agreement with you people see blood moons and earthquakes and all of a sudden i told you the end is coming and you know yeah. they nobody knows yeah i mean he they they he, he, jesus even tells you no one's gonna have a clue only i know yeah yeah hey thanks right, so much man, my brother thanks. love your show awesome thanks
1: okay bye we're gonna really try to take a quick call from eddie in clinton north carolina eddie quickly on heart of the matter Hello? Hedy, you're on the air. You have to turn down your computer. Oh, I'm sorry, man. My, my computer's a little bit below yours, uh,
3: behind what you're teaching. I was watching on YouTube. Um, my question to you, man, is um, with this teaching that you're having about uh, him coming out uh, at 70 AD or whatever you're saying, then why didn't the early church fathers, like the uh, apostles, disciples, and things like that that, uh, that we read uh, why didn't they come out and outright say, hey, this is already quotes. came back, guys?
1: We're going to show you some opening quotes, Eddie, from the early church fathers. Actually, one of the earliest church fathers. This is what we open the show with. Will you bring them up, Merle, if you can find them? And we're going to read these. And, and, and here's what the early church fathers said about what I'm talking about, all right? Here's two of them. Uh, let's see if we can get it up. All right. Uh, Christosum, in his liturgy, remembering this saving commandment and all those things which came to pass for us the cross, the grave, the resurrection on the third day, the ascension into heaven, the sitting down on the right hand, the second and glorious coming again. Okay, that's what he said. Let me give you one. Origin, 100 AD, hundreds AD, I challenge anyone to prove my statement untrue. If I say that the entire Jewish nation was destroyed less than a whole generation later on account of these sufferings which they inflicted on Jesus, for it was, I believe, 42 years from the time that they crucified Jesus to the destruction of Jerusalem. Now that one's not as on point saying that he came back, but he did visit with everything he's describing in Matthew 24, and that's from an early church father. And there's more, and we're gonna show you more as the show continues. Okay. Sort
3: of go back to what James saying, and, and I'm, I'm with it because I, I when you picked up, my, like I said, my YouTube was, uh, I guess, a few minutes behind y'all. He was saying that, uh, that there's nothing to look forward to. If he's already came back, um, it, and, and the Bible says that to every man there's going to be one death and all that kind of stuff, what is our future hope? What is, what is the future hope for, for all believers? If he's already fulfilled all the prophecies of what the Bible has uh, given us, if he's if he's already died, rose yep. again, sanctified all the people, yep. came back, called them home, yep. where are we going? What, okay. What, okay. What's the next place?
1: What has the second coming, the imminent second coming, meant to someone who is a believer their whole life who died yesterday, a week ago, 50 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago? millions and millions of Christians have lived a Christian life and died expecting for his return. And you know what, they had it. When they died, they have their second coming and they have a face-to-face judgment and they have their second coming. It's an individual respective experience now. The collective one was done in 70 AD, but we're gonna build on that, we're out of time. Eddie, thank you so much for watching. We love and praise God. Stay with us, some things are off many things may be off, many things may be right on, but we're going to pursue this until we can figure it out the best of our ability. God bless you. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Good job. all am on a ride
0: going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the And I won't be coming Out, I'm going in This man's awake A storm's arising The dawn's waiting Till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light Monkeys start.